Hi, everyone. It's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. And I have a great guest for you today. Today, my guest is Steve Cuss. Steve is the author of one of my favorite books that I've read uh, in 2020, depending on whether this is airing. It's either 2021 or uh, 2020. But uh, it's one of the best books that I've read recently, and it's called Managing Leadership anxiety. And I recently heard uh, Steve on the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast, and I absolutely knew that I needed to talk with him as well. And so I reached out to him. And uh, Steve, we're going to talk a lot about some of the content of the book, but Steve served as a chaplain at a level one trauma hospital. And we talk a little bit about that and kind of what he's learned from that as well. And, and currently, he is the lead pastor of Discovery Christian Church in Broomfield, Colorado. Before we get into our conversation, though, I do want to have, or I do have a couple of thank yous that I want to say. I want to say thank you to Garrett for editing this podcast, Garrett Oler for doing that. I want to say thank you for, to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast as well. And if this happens to be your first time listening, I do want to tell you a little bit about the vision behind this podcast and what this podcast is meant to be. The Learner's Corner podcast is a podcast meant for lifelong learners. We truly believe that we can learn from anyone, from everyone, from anything, and from everything. And really what we want to do here is we want to create a safe place to have dangerous conversations because there are some conversations, some people that uh, you know that it's not safe to have certain conversations with them because you're afraid that you'll um, anger them, that you'll be judged by them. And here on this podcast, we want to create a platform. I want to create a platform to where we can have those types of conversations in a safe place to where we could continue to learn from each other and continue to grow as well. And so that's really what the podcast is all about. And that's really why we created this podcast uh, several years ago. And so I'm thankful that you've decided to, at least for today, be a part of our community. And uh, if you have anything, if you would like to reach out to me, the best way to do that is by hitting me up on Instagram. My handle is at Caleb J. Mason. Would love to hear from you. Would love uh, to hear anything that you wish that we would talk about on the podcast or things that you would love to learn from and we can look into making that happen as well. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Steve Cuss. Well, Steve, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, many different things, but one of the things that we're going to cover a lot is uh, your book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. And just as we're getting started, one of the questions that I always love to ask people whenever they put out a book or any type of work of art is what was the story or the event or series of events that made you go, wow, I, I need to release this into the world for other people? Uh, it's a great question. Yeah, Caleb, thanks for having me on. Um, it's it's a real treat to be with you. Uh, you know, I, I think every faith leader hits a wall at some point in their life. They hit bottom or they have some kind of burnout. And I just happened to hit that wall freakishly early when I was 24. And it was when I was a hospital chaplain. And I, I suddenly found myself in a job where I'm I'm helping people die every day or I'm helping people cope with someone dying. 
or I'm helping people cope with like the worst news they've ever heard in their life. A child has cancer or something like that. And um, that, that was a formative year, probably the most formative year of my life because it really, for the first time in my life, helped me see that I have an inner world that if I'm not paying attention to it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bubble up and infect everything. And so that was kind of the basis of the book. That's, that was ultimately where I got started. And you know, I've been in church leadership now 25 years, and I was really surprised to discover that a lot of the lessons you kind of learn in intensive care waiting lounge um, are completely applicable to church leadership as well, or really uh, organizational leadership. Yeah. Can, can you talk about some of those formative things that you learned during that year that, uh, that still, like you still use today in your leadership? Yeah, like I, I had only been a believer a few years when I went into Bible college and I was unchurched. It wasn't like I was raised in the church and didn't believe. I was completely outside the church. So I came into Bible college pretty blank slate. And in fact, at my Bible entrance exam, when I went to college, they give you a little Bible test. I got 21%. Um, like that's really bad. I couldn't <laughs> put Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the correct order, for example. So I was totally green slate. I graduated from Bible college, you know, I'm 24. I've got a great Bible degree. I was really well educated. I went to Johnson University, great school. And um, I, I think for me, it was the idea that, um, that I could be a human being. I, I think I thought a pastor was almost like a different species than a human. I think the lessons I learned in chaplaincy is to bring my full humanity into every situation, my fears, my doubts, my mistakes. I think before that, I was bringing my successes, my theology. I think, you know, Paul says, um, Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. I just think we all are trying to outgrow that. Like, we're all like, well, that was then. But I, I think it's present tense. I think Christ's power really is made perfect in my weakness now. So that's never left me. I lead from weakness. I lead from vulnerability. I share my failures. I make sure my team is failing on a regular basis. Uh, we actually prescribe failures for new staff members that are afraid to get it wrong. Um, so that's something that's always stuck with me. Talk to me. What does prescribing failures look like for a team? Well, you know, depending on some people have come from a church culture where they just were not allowed to get it wrong. They get in trouble. And then other people have come from a childhood that way or maybe another job. And I, I just think if, you know, church leadership's the only job where you have to walk by faith to do it. You cannot actually do any church staffing job by your own strength. I'm not talking about just lead pastor. I mean, any church staffing job. So if you're going to walk by faith and you're going to encourage people on your staff to walk by faith, there's going to be a percentage of decisions you make that you think you're following God and you're just not. You're just wrong you're going to get it wrong. And, you know, leaders, most of our mistakes are public. Most people see them. So you, as a leader, you have to come to terms with being the mistake maker in chief early if you're going to survive. Otherwise, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to stop walking by faith because making mistakes hurts. Or worse yet, you're going to become a hypocrite and have this image that you know what you're doing when you really don't. There's still a lot of my job, particularly in COVID. I mean, everything's changed for me in the last six months. There's a lot of my job that I actually don't know what to do. And I don't mean the mechanics of my job. Like I know how to make a sermon and run a meeting and pray for someone. 
But I don't know if most of the decisions we're making right now for our church are good or right. Mm-hmm. It takes faith. So that's kind of what I mean. So yeah, like if we have college interns coming in, we might make sure we, you know, you, you can't prescribe a mistake where you end up in jail. Like that's not good. But but something where you get over the fear of getting it wrong. So the most recent example is we had a college intern and he was tasked by his boss to order the food for the volunteer banquet. This is pre-COVID. And he was terrified of making a mistake. So we prescribed that he had to order three times more meat than he needed to. And we didn't tell his boss, who, by the way, is my employee. Like, I'm his boss's boss. Yeah. Uh, and so we were swimming in meat the next day, you know, that uh, I woke up and there's an email from his boss to the staff, like, hey, everyone, there's lots of leftovers, you know. And uh, he came in the next week and he was just flummoxed that he didn't get in trouble. He's like, this is crazy. But we were just trying to get him to die to the need to always get it right. Mm, that's good. What are what are some common things that you see that get in the way of people sharing their full humanity with either the people they lead or their family or whatever that might be? I think the number one challenge for pastors is that I think we still believe we need to be the example. And I'm not convinced. Like if maybe we need to be like a leader is always on display. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. But an example of what? And I, I think when we are trying to be an example of the right kind of Christian, I think we're in for trouble. I think if you choose to be an example of a hungry, spiritually hungry person who's passionate about Jesus, that should be enough. So in my case, I'm a lead pastor. But in the Bible, pastor is not a title, right? It's a gift. It's one of the spiritual gifts. But in the Western modern church, I'm given this title and all this authority, almost like a Catholic priest. Like not quite, but I'm almost seen in that. And the reason is, is because I open the Bible on a regular basis and try to help people not only make sense of it, but have a profound encounter with God through it. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got a bachelor's degree. I did, I did a bachelor's degree in Bible and preaching. And then I did a, a 96-hour master's degree in theology. I'm stupidly educated. And you would think a guy with my level of education should be able to move people spiritually. But they don't say to themselves, he's good at this because he was well-trained. They say to themselves, he must be closer to God than I am. Mm. And I think as soon as the pastor starts believing that, I think we're in trouble. So my job in our church, I'm the lead pastor. I make the difficult decisions. I'm the primary leader. That's all true. But I'm just, I'm part of the body of Christ. And I just happen to be, as part of my contribution, the theological interpreter for our church. But that doesn't make me closer to God than like the lady who changes diapers in the nursery at all. And that's biblical. That's what the Apostle Paul would say. So I see that as a real problem with pastors is we feel this need to look like a good Christian Um, or even with our authenticity. Like we went from that and now we're kind of all into authenticity, right? It's a buzzword. But what we're doing, we're actually curating our authenticity and, and we're making sure it sells well in a message. So I think we have to be even more careful nowadays because if our, if our goal is authenticity, then our temptation is almost authentic, you know? Yeah, uh, and, it looks... And, or go ahead. 
and Instagram influencers. We're seeing this happening all the time with our, these Instagram influencers that actually had very little substance. That are maybe they they're spend making you pay a thousands of dollars for their marriage, and then they're getting divorced themselves. And people are getting really fed up. I, I think that's an example of it. They looked authentic. They weren't. They actually spent a lot of money to look authentic. So I'd say that's the biggest challenge I see with pastors. And the second one is we are not naturally good at taking care of ourselves. We're very others focused. And I think that's a big problem. Yeah. How do you fight against that, that mentality to, for other people who want to raise you up to almost like a level, like above everybody else? Because I think it's a, it's a very natural thing that tends to happen. How do you personally fight against that? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty aware of my idols. I think that's helpful. And so I, I, and in, in my book, Idols, I would just talk about these are the sources of my chronic anxiety. I really want to be impressive. I want to be liked. I want people to think I'm funny. I want people to think I'm brilliant. If I know that about myself. It's easier to die to those things. And then when somebody, you can feel when somebody is giving you more praise than you have actually earned. You can just feel it. And so I, I'm usually gracious to those people and I usually give them some version of what I just told you about me versus the nursery worker. So I'm not like, I don't want to put people down. I don't like, that's not, that's not okay. But just to say, hey, I'm really grateful that God's using me in your life. But at this church, here's how it works. And then I'm often saying that from the stage, like I've, I've probably said 50 times in the last 15 years, Hey, if you're getting spiritual insight from me, it's not because I'm necessarily closer to Jesus. It's because I'm well-trained and you have actually paid me to put about 15 hours a week into the study of this. That's why, that's why, you know, and, and I'm chasing Jesus just like you are. I'm, I'm going hard after it. Here's what I'm learning, that kind of stuff. I find that really helpful. And then it helps also with the critics because people do tend to either put you on a pedestal or cut you down. And that kind of approach helps both ways, I think. Mm -hmm. What are some ways that you've uh, either uh, intentionally set up or you just have made it part of your, part of your daily practice um, to incorporate the humanity into your leadership? Yeah. So I, I, I intentionally build a culture where any of our team can share the impact of our actions with anyone else. So even though I'm the lead pastor, it's not that I'm expecting vulnerability out of my people without me going first. So pretty much all of my staff know my mistakes. Uh, they, there's very few of my staff that look up to me, right? Because the, I'm, I'm exactly human-sized. Uh, so that's a, that's a practice. And then just... I, I'm, you know, obviously I've been doing this anxiety work for 20 something years. I've gotten very familiar with the sources of my own anxiety. And so I generally have a daily habit of dying to them. And that does take multiple efforts sometimes. But if, if, if like, I know that I always feel the need to have the right answer, I'll practice being in a meeting where I know the right answer, but I won't say anything. Mm -hmm. I just, I'll practice not being the smartest guy in the room because no one likes that guy anyway. Um, or if I'm going into an elders meeting and I know they might ask me something I don't know the answer to, I'll, I'll pray ahead of time just to die to the need to pretend. Yeah, just some basic spiritual practices, I think. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is uh, it feels like we are living in one of the most anxious times, like 
at least at, I'll say at least in my lifetime. I mean, because you have uh, you have all of the the anxiety that comes with COVID, and then yeah. with the racial injustice, and then you throw we're in the middle of a political season right now, and sometimes it could feel like you were tr- like you were trapped in your anxiety, like you're constantly trapped in an environment of anxiety. What can you do to like fight that anxiety whenever it feels like everywhere you turn, like you can't escape it? Yeah, it's what a great question. Uh, I've actually identified 29 sources of anxiety that are common to all of us. And there's only 19 in the book because I've found another 10 since the book published. But uh, one of them is ambiguity. And anytime you're in an ambiguous situation, you're going to be anxious. And COVID, like you like you just said, uh, another one is scarcity. Um, if, if there's just not enough, you get anxious. And then, yeah, I, I, I think like if if your faith community has any political diversity at all, and I really hope it does for most of your listeners, you're going to have political tension in your church because so many of your people, especially in America, like I'm an Aussie, we we have our own faults, but we don't tend to put much hope in our politicians, so therefore they don't let us down as much. Mm-hmm. I came to America and it, it is, it's unique to this culture that all our hopes and dreams kind of are Every four years, they're making these wild promises that no one could ever fulfill. So I've noticed in American church, a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, some of my people, they view everything through a political lens. So if you can identify the various sources of anxiety, you've got the power to manage them. So just knowing you're in an ambiguous situation with COVID helps you relax from trying to get it just right. And just knowing that you've got political diversity in your church and people are very passionate about it helps you just stay above it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we teach parents, because we do some parenting anxiety too, is like, you know, you get a teenager. I've got three teens. And obviously things get a little more emotionally unstable. Even kids that are pretty solid, they still go through a, a stronger mood swing than they did before him. And we just teach parents who are like, look, they can get on the roller coaster and you can stay on the platform. They'll go on the ride, they'll buckle in, they'll have, they'll have quite an experience and they're coming back. They'll come back to the platform. You don't have to get on the roller coaster with them. And I would say that to faith leaders, like people can be spun up and it doesn't mean you have to be spun up. Every one of us have the capacity to manage our anxiety and to begin to notice when other people's anxiety is infecting us and to take that beat, you know, that 10 seconds, that two minutes, just to really work on, I'm not going to let their anxiety get me all reactive and heightened. So what you do is you, you notice your own defensiveness and reactivity. And as you notice it rising, you do an intervention. And if, the, if one of the easiest interventions is to name it out loud. So I, I've been in meetings where I'll just say to someone, hey, I, I can just feel myself getting more and more defensive. And I really want to hear what you're saying. So I just wanted to name my defensiveness so I can get past it and hear you. Okay, say that again. And even just doing that is vulnerable, but that'll actually de-escalate the situation. It'll certainly throw the person off. They'll be like, wow, I've never had someone say that to me before. And then if you do something like that, you'll very quickly know if you're dealing with a bully or a reasonable person because a bully will use that against you. And a reasonable person is always attracted to vulnerability. A bully always wields your vulnerability against you. So then, you know, maybe you gave him a stick to beat you with. You'll only do it once. 
now you've figured that person out, you'll be more careful next time. Yeah. I'm really curious to hear what were some of the other sources of anxiety that you discovered since the book has been published? I know, 29 of them, right? Yeah, I've got a page of them. Uh, New. Uh, One source of anxiety is new. New job, new location, um, new environmental situation. Uh, As it relates to COVID, family systems theory, which is what I've been trained in, it has a term called societal regression. And it's the idea that we all catch each other's anxiety through the decades and we become more and more anxious as a culture. So Murray Bowen, the guy that founded this theory, he coined the term societal regression in the 50s. And he said, by the 1970s, things are going to be really bad. And I keep thinking to myself, boy, what would he think now? Like we just get more and more anxious um, as the decades roll by. So societal regression is one. I'm trying to think of the ones since the book. I could I could pull up my list real quick. I've got it mm-hmm. here on a on a snappy list. Um, let me just pull it up. Yeah, because nineteen of them are in the book. That's chapter three and five. Yeah. Uh, I did a whole thing since the book came out on criticism, mm-hmm. and that there's three different types of criticism: accumulative criticism, secondhand criticism, like if your spouse is getting criticized that has an impact on you. Mm. And then uh, the same meeting, different experience. You can be in the same meeting as somebody, but you're all having a very different experience depending on who's on the hot seat. Um, Let's see. Grief is always a source of chronic anxiety. Yeah, those would be some of the newer ones. I was going to say, can you say more about the same meeting, different experience and kind of how that plays itself out? Yeah, that one's a bit sophisticated. If if a group of you are in a meeting for some kind of reconciliation, like maybe your job is you've been asked to come in and mediate between two people. You have to, because you're not getting the hits, you can't feel when someone's bleeding out. So you have to try to notice, is somebody getting hit that they're actually not well? You need to come in and protect them. It took me a while to learn this because I used to be the brunt of those meetings. Like if someone had an issue with me, maybe one of the elders would sit down and we'd all try to work it out. Because I was on the hot seat, I would come away and say, boy, that really hurt. And the elder would say, oh, great meeting. (laughs) And I'm like, great meeting? What meeting were you at? And it's because when you're on the hot seat, it's an altogether different experience than everyone else in the room. So a good leader will, will not just pay attention to themselves, but the actually care for the people in the room. I was in one of those meetings last year and I had to shut it. I, I was a media and I stepped in and shut it down. And I said, hey, we don't do that here. What, what's going on right now? We do not do that here. And because I could see the impact of the behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some things that you're looking for in those meetings that help you know, hey, like as the leader, I need to step in and almost protect this person? That's a great question. Uh, a lot of this for me was born out of my experience working with people in domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I came from a big church in Las Vegas and I did a lot of uh, DV work. Your listeners can Google John Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N, maybe N-N. He has a thing called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's the four tendencies to destroy any relationship. Are you, you're nodding your head. Are you familiar with these? I'm, I'm familiar. Yeah, I'm familiar with them. Yeah. yeah go I, ahead and ex- explain. So that's it. So yeah, contempt stonewalling, defensiveness, and indifference. So I'm looking for those four. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if somebody is expecting 
all of the information from somebody, from one person, but not providing any. If it's out of balance, of if the vulnerability is mismatched, if they're wielding someone's vulnerability against them, or if they're showing contempt, stonewalling, defensiveness, or indifference, I'm usually stepping in and saying, we don't do that here. We engage, we move toward each other, we believe the best about each other, things like that. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I want to ask you about is that for the person who's listening right now and they're going, I know that we live in an anxious world, but I feel the need to keep updated, like keep updated with the news, keep updated on Twitter, all that stuff, because I want to be aware of what's happening. How can I, how can I navigate that tension between being aware of what's happening in the world or what's happening in our country and yet not being taken over by our anxiety? Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? Because news really has become instant. That's a great question. I'd have to think about it. I mean, my immediate response is family systems theory teaches us to notice when we're in a stuck pattern where we, even though we know better, we can't stop ourselves. That's kind of the big idea. Or another way to think about it, if, if you're married, what you fight with your spouse about, about might change. Maybe you fight about money or sex or the kids. The way you fight with each other stays the same your pattern with your spouse is predictable. So if you keep returning to the news because you want to stay informed, but then it costs you emotionally, what you're looking for in family systems here is any pattern where your solution to any problem is more of the same. So what I heard in your question was somebody who's operating out of more of the same. The news isn't good for my soul, yet I must keep watching it. I hear that. I'm like, I would challenge that assumption. Uh, and then the other sign that you're stuck is when you're applying try harder to any solution that's not working. So I'm always listening for people when they're feeling stuck. I'm listening for where are they trying harder and where are they doing more of the same and how can we break those patterns? So I, I, I guess I would say for the, like the obsessive news cycle person, who can tell you when you really need to know something and what would it be like to stay off the news for two weeks? I mean, I, I've, I've gone weeks without reading the news yeah. or watching it. And when I turn it back on, it literally is more of the same. Yeah. It's it's same uproar, angst. So I'm not convinced that we need the news as much as maybe we think we do. Yeah. Well, you even saying that makes me think of like another section of, of your book. Like they are getting rewarded from the news for something because it's it's maybe a, a belief that they have about like, hey, I I found my value in the news because I share it with other people or something along those lines. Definitely. There's definitely a, a siloing. I, I've always been, I'm a cheapskate just by species. I've always been a cheapskate. I paid for television for the first time last year. And I know it's not cool to love TV. I love paid television. I can't <laughs> believe how great it is. Uh, I watch Formula One motor racing. I grew up in a motor racing family and and the only way I could get Formula One was to pay. So I did not, I, I, this might sound funny to your listeners, but as an immigrant, I did not understand Fox News and CNN. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I'd heard, I'd heard of them. People talk about them. But on my TV, they're one channel apart. You click one up and it's Fox. Maybe that's the same for everybody. I literally am brand new to this. It is the wildest experience to watch CNN for five minutes and click over to Fox and watch Fox. And maybe everyone's done this. Maybe I'm like, people are like, Dude, it's 2020. You're just now figuring this out. But um, the the you know I'm not a fake news conspiracy theorist at all. But the bias 
is pretty pretty palpable. Um, so I'm, I'm not convinced that that's helping us build a kingdom mm-hmm. uh, when we're trying to be one side of a bird. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I want to ask you about is I was just talking with a friend of mine um, the other day, and he just said, I didn't realize how how much stress I was carrying with me until all of a sudden it became apparent. What are some things that we can be looking at in ourselves or even doing some self-evaluation to go, I'm actually suffering from stress and anxiety more than I even realize. So I love that question. It's such a helpful question. Because I think your friend is, is actually speaking for a lot of leaders. Most leaders don't know when they're anxious. And when they know, they're very, very anxious. They've got this, like they've gone way down into the cave. So there's two things you can do. You can learn to notice when it first shows up in your body. And uh, I, I write about it in the book, but it's, it's usually a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening body. And then the, the fourth category is all three, some people say. And then the fifth category is, I don't know where it starts. But if, if your listeners like, oh, I don't know where it starts, that's your homework this week is start to notice your physiology. For me, it's a spinning mind. Mm-hmm. That's how I know I'm anxious as I try to worry my way to a solution. What, what would it be for you, Caleb? Oh, yeah. It is, it is the spinning mind. I get stuck in my head so much. Yeah. And I just play out every single scenario in my mind to think about something. And then it, it just, it's never helpful because I can, yeah. then I think of like, well, if I do this, but then this will happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you know you're in anxiety's grip is it actually has a gospel and it's always doom. And, and it's like drinking salt water. You never get, yeah. you know, never get your thirst quenched. So if people can notice their physiology, now they have this incredible power to intervene before your mind. So you go from spinning and then you're in that rumination phase where you can't stop thinking about it. Starting to build interventions between the first and second stage is what you do next. Uh, this, the second thing you can do is you can ask somebody who loves you, how do they know you're anxious before you know? Hmm. And uh, you can ask a spouse, uh, a family member. Where it gets really interesting is if you have kids in the house, once they get to about the age of seven, they'll tell you. They're, they're not old enough to, to filter their opinion and they know because everybody knows when you're anxious. And then those of you who work on teams, if you want to be really brave, ask your team, how do you know I'm anxious when I don't know I'm anxious? And I would just say, once they tell you, just believe them. And that'll help you become more aware. And awareness is 50% of the battle. If you can know you're anxious, you have incredible power to give it to God and to die to it. There's a couple of quotes in the book that I, I just want to read, and I would just love uh, just your take and for you to expound and elaborate on them. And the first is, uh, which is so, is so relevant, is that burnout has less to do with the workload and more to do with internal and external leadership anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I think the fallacy that leaders believe is the reason we burn out is we're working too much. But most leaders I know get motivated by a big workload or a big vision. I know I do. I like a lot. I like having a lot to do. It's the unaddressed chronic anxiety. It's, it's if you're a sensitive person and criticism hits you harder because you're a people pleaser, that, that would be me, for example. I'm, I'm a highly sensitive person. I'm actually diagnosed as an HSP by a therapist. 
Mm-hmm. He, I, I was I'd with him like three or four sessions. And he said, oh, I think you might be an HSP. What do you think? And I said, well, what's an HSP? He says, highly sensitive person. You feel very deeply. You have strong emotions. And I burst into tears as soon as he said it. And he's like, yeah, I think you are. Um, so I just know in my life, I feel criticism deeper than a lot of other people do. That's why I'm going to burn out because I can't stand one more email, one more critic. Uh, if you're a perfectionist and you always need to get it right every time and you keep doing it half-baked because COVID is blowing everything up and your best efforts, you're, you're giving yourself a C-, minus. that's why you're going to burn out, not because of workload. So it's, it's unaddressed things you're living for when you're not living for Jesus uh, that will lead you to burnout rather than workload. Yeah. The next is that the fruit of self-awareness is being more present with others. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think with the Enneagram nowadays, which is a tool I love. Mm-hmm. I got to ask, what type are you? Oh yeah. So I would identify as a three and I think I'm a four wing. Um, Present. I'm literally and- the exact same thing. I tell you what, I just bought Sean Palmer's book. He has a devotional for Enneagram 3s, 40 Days for the Enneagram 3. Amazing. You got to get it. I'll have to check it out. I think it literally came out yesterday. Um, So, okay, I got, oh yeah, self-awareness. So so I think our whole culture is on a self-awareness addiction right now. We're fascinated with ourselves, you know? And um, I just think if we realize the goal is, presence to God and presence to people, it's not actually knowing us. The goal is not knowing ourselves. Knowing ourselves is the conduit to the goal of connection with God and connection Mm -hmm. with people. And so that's my concern is people like to use the Enneagram as a party trick or they like to use my materials and family systems series so they can be a better leader. It's really so you can be fully present to God, fully present to people And so that your false self isn't blocking your ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another quote that I want to read, and then I have a question that goes with it as well, is you write in the book that a leader who pays attention to a system isn't so much concerned with the content of what is being said, but rather the process of how people are relating and behaving. And just the question that I had with that is like, when you're looking at the process, what are some of the warning signs that something is wrong and, and what are some good indicators about that? You can tell something is wrong when your team is in a stuck predictable pattern. So we we're talking a little bit earlier, but that's one of the signs that a whole group is anxious mm-hmm. is the whole group is stuck. And so like in a, in a church staff, for example, a stuck predictable pattern could look like it's always the same person that speaks up first. Uh, it's Jack always mansplains. Like Katie says something and then Jack explains to everyone what Katie meant or corrects Katie. It's, it's always the same people that never speak up in the meeting, but then afterwards they had their own meeting, this meeting after the meeting. Mm-hmm. That's an example that they're stuck in. And any leader can start to notice not just what's going on inside yourself, but what's going on between people because anxiety is contagious in every group. And so like, for example, if somebody has an outburst in a meeting, the whole group gets anxious. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to pretend it didn't happen? Who's the, first, who's the person that can't handle the awkward silence and has to speak? Oftentimes it's the leader. Whereas if you name the dynamic, 
you can actually grow closer together. So uh, I'm trying to think of an example there. Like if somebody has an outburst, it's very rare that they can then immediately name that, oh, I just had an outburst. But it could be three to five minutes later. I've seen this happen so many times in our team. Mm -hmm. Three to five minutes after the outburst, it's awkward and we keep moving on. The person will say, hey, guys, can we just stop for a minute? I'm really sorry of what, here's what was going on in me. I'm sorry that I kind of made it awkward. And just by naming that, it de- all they did is name the process. What's fascinating to me is everybody already reacts to process. They just have never brought it to the surface to talk about openly because it feels threatening to people, feels aggressive. Mm-hmm. What, what are some things that leaders can do to be proactive in making sure that the process goes well? I think if a leader goes first and is vulnerable and, and models naming the process and what that would look like is the leader is modeling for their team what's going on inside the leader. So I'm often saying, hey, I'm, I just know I'm kind of anxious right now or hey, I just wrapped up this really intense call. So I'm struggling to be present right now. I just wanted to name that. Mm-hmm. That then gives everyone permission. That would be step one. Step two, which is a deeper dive, is when you start paying attention to the negative impact of your shadow side. I've got a friend, Jay. He's a phenomenal leader. Once a year, his team sit in a circle and Jay, who's the leader of the team, he says, okay, what are the one or two things that only I can do for this organization that you need me to keep doing? What are one or two things that you really wish I would stop doing because it's toxic to our team? I'll go first. And everyone goes around and they say, Jay, look, the way you interpret the Bible, none of us can do that. Keep doing that. But hey, this always having to be the smart guy thing, it's, it's annoying. And then once he hears it, he says, thank you for that feedback. I'm going to work on that this year. And I would appreciate it if you keep bringing it up when you see me doing it. So I started putting that into practice a few years ago with my team, just saying, what's the, what can I do? But what's the part of me you wish I would work on? Now that takes some vulnerability, but everyone can do that. I would just say that in, in some church cultures, if the top leader is not aware and maybe not a safe person, I'm not sure I would do that exercise. Mm-hmm. It's, it's challenging if you're not in a healthy environment from the top that you're operating vulnerably when the top leader is not. That gets pretty tricky. Yeah. Another tool that you talk about, which I, I've actually heard about it for a couple of years, but I haven't had a chance to dive into it really deep, is you talk about the genogram as well. Can you just talk about what the genogram is? And, uh, and then I just have a couple of things that I want to follow up on that. Yeah. Genogram is one of my all-time favorite tools. Uh, it's a family tree on a, on a big sheet of paper. Normally you do it on like a six or eight foot wide butcher paper. There's also an app, you know, we're digital now, so you can buy the app and make one on your computer. Family tree, men are squares, women are circles. So it's, it's got shapes and lines and colors. And you go back, if you can, to your great-grandparents' generation, if you're able. But the genogram isn't as interested in interesting family trivia. Great-great-great-uncle whatever was a Civil War general. It's not as interested in that. It's interested in the generational traits that are handed down generation to generation. So it's a very Old Testament idea that the sins of the father are passed to the third and fourth generation. So you look at addictions, family secrets the way people were raised, family values. And then there's certain themes like abuse and cutoff. And it helps you understand as a leader, 
What cards have I been dealt? What am I holding on to that God's calling me to let go of? And what is holding on to me? Uh, Pete Scazzaro is quite famous for genogram work and he's, he's wonderful. I, I think he coined the phrase, he said, Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. And what Pete means is like, every time you walk into a meeting, your family of origin is walking in with you and it can compete for the space where God is calling you to do something because you're busy operating out of your family propaganda rather than out of the gospel. That's kind of a, a genogram in a nutshell. Yeah, and, and you mentioned some of the things to be be looking for whenever you fill out yours. What are some other things, both like positive and negative, that you should be looking for in terms of this? Yeah, I love that you brought out the positive because it's not about digging up yeah. dirt. And, and genograms are never interested in blame. You're not trying to figure out another reason to blame dad. You're just trying to get insight on what are you holding. Uh, and so usually you can, you're looking for positive, intimate connection. You know, family laughter and shared experiences is almost always an evidence of that. Um, you, oftentimes you'll also see, like I, I did a genogram last year for a friend of mine and it was so, like we were all crying by the end of it. It was so moving because he talked about how his dad inherited, they had a Ku Klux Klan background mm-hmm. and, and his dad inherited, then he inherited it. And the moment that he and his wife and their kids, they had this family memento that was evidence that a family member was in the clan and the extended family wanted to keep it because it's history. And my friend, I'll call him Jack. He's like, no, no, we're burning it. And he got his kids and his wife and they said, and they used their last name because we are blank. These people, we did not tolerate racism in any form. And they set fire to it and made a prayer. And it was his way of like drawing a line in the generational sand from my generation on, we will not tolerate any form of racism. It's really powerful. That would be an evidence of a positive. Sometimes you see the gospel show up in a generation and then just all these believers come through. I'm thinking of someone like a Rick Warren or Chris C. Mm -hmm. Generation after generation of pastors. Uh, So those are positive traits. Negative traits, you're looking for family secrets. What did everyone know that no one talked about? Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes you find like three generations of affairs. I've, I've done genograms where there's a newlywed couple and there's so many double hash, hashtags between the marriage line up, up the genogram. There's just, the whole page is covered with divorce. And so it just helps you realize what do they understand about commitment and marriage based on the genogram. The thing I'm mostly looking for is family propaganda. Hmm. What do you believe must be for you to be okay? Because the gospel says you actually don't need that. But a lot of people are assuming things. So I guess another positive story, I had a Bible college professor. He talked about when he was a kid and he would spill because he was clumsy and how he'd get such a whipping from his parents for spilling. And it really traumatized him. And he's a pretty sensitive guy. He gets married and he's telling his wife about this. And she's like, well, here's what we're going to do about that. And she just started spilling drinks every meal. She'd just tip over the drink at the table. By the time they had, I think they had three daughters, they had a family rule that if one of us spills, we all spill. So like one of the daughters would clumsily spill the drink and they'd all just dump their drinks. And it was intentionally, right? Like the family propaganda was you may never, like even though you're four, you should know better was kind of what he inherited. Mm -hmm. That would be an example of genogram work that helped him uncover, you know, what he believed to be true that wasn't true. Yeah. And and just as, 
we're wrapping up one, one final thing that I would love to uh, hear you talk about is take me back to, you know, the Steve of 24 years old and think about how much you've changed to today. Can you just talk about the difference and the life change that you've seen in yourself from whenever you were 24 to today? Yeah, it, it's hard to talk about life change without me talking about how the gospels transform my life. Yeah. Because I, I was 14 when I became a Christian and I was a suburban, straight arrow, never smoked. Like I was a virgin when I got married, never been drunk. To this day, I've never been drunk. Mm-hmm. I'm a boring, I'm a boring suburban guy. And, but what Jesus did is, is I remember even as a 14 year old, even at that age, I was lost and I knew I was lost and I didn't know what to do about it. And I didn't know I was spiritually lost. I just felt lost in this world. I didn't know how to navigate my world. And I think the gospel gave me a home and that changed everything for me. The love of God changed my life. And then I I think also it changed what my heart wants. And so I write about this a lot in chapter two with a theology of anxiety. My heart used to need people to love me at all costs, even if I would damage someone to get love. Like, I have stories about being in youth group and making someone the butt of my joke so I could get a laugh, you know. Jesus freed me from all of that. And then since I was 24, I think the transformation of the gospel there is um, just getting to be a human being that loves Jesus, not a so-called pastor. Mm. It's getting, I I lead, I mean, my congregation's like 1,200 people a week. Like we're a sizable church, but I'm just the human in residence that happens to open the Bible. I find that to be profoundly freeing. Um, and, and, and I think the other thing, Caleb, is so many faith leaders I know struggle to feel the love of God we tell other people about. And I think since 2015, the last five years, I've been on a strong bender that I've been unwilling to accept that and worked really hard at making sure I'm viscerally encountering the love of God at least as much as I'm telling people about it. Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah, it's a, unfortunately, it's a longer question, but I, I have this tool called a life-giving list yeah. that has probably been the most profound inroad to the love of God because it's expanded. It's almost like a mystical thing where uh, it's expanded my understanding of how to connect with God beyond just Bible study and prayer all the way down to holding my wife's hand, eating a piece of lint chocolate, fly fishing. Now I have 80 to 100 experiences or people or places where I know these are things that God has given me to enjoy because I'm God's child. And so I'm just outpacing my employee work with child gifts, I guess. I, it, it's, it's, I write about it. It's a bit hard to talk about uh, briefly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and just one, one final thing that I just want to ask you about is for the person who is currently experiencing anxiety, they're, they're listening to this podcast, they're experiencing anxiety. What would you say to that person? You know, I, I would say it's worth the fight. I, I think if you treat anxiety like an oppressor, like you start looking at Moses and, and Pharaoh, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, some of our freedom movement people, they had to fight for their freedom. I think we have the mistaken belief that because Jesus died for us, we can just step into it. Yeah, it's a free gift by grace, not by works. But we have to fight for the freedom that's ours. We have an oppressor. I believe it's our chronic anxiety. So I would say there's hope. And then in 2021, I'm actually starting a wait list right now. I'm opening up an online community and there's a free option and a paid option. 
free option. You get a video a month from me, a little tool you can try, and then you get access to an online community. The paid option, you get a video almost every week. You get Zoom calls. It's quite a thing. But it's really, it's, it's my book piecemealed out on a regular basis where you get to be part of a community of others. Uh, people could just email me if they want to be on the wait list for that. We're building it right now. But um, that's because the book for me, it just came out of a class I've been teaching for years at my church. And ever since the book came out, I've been just trying to figure out how to get it back into an experience. Because mm-hmm. I don't believe you can read your way to change. You have to practice your way to change. You have to have a community that helps you. So next year, we're launching a community for that. And it'd be super, even the paid options, like 25 bucks a month, super affordable. Yeah. We're trying to make it for anyone's church budget can manage it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Steve, I know that people are going to want to continue to learn from you, pick up the book and all of that stuff. So where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, if they just go to stevecuswords.com, that's my website. They can email me through that um, or they can just find me on Twitter at Steve Cusswords. And uh, yeah, if they want to be on the wait list or want more information, just reach out to me and I'll be, I'll be sending an update in a few weeks. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, this work. I know personally for me, it has helped me so much and I'm just so grateful for it. Oh, you're welcome, Caleb. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And just thank you for all the work that you've done. I know it has um, it has impacted me a great deal, and I'm so thankful for that. And speaking of people I'm thankful for, I want to say again, thank you to Garrett Oler for doing the editing on this episode. And thank you to Sam Massey as well for creating the music for this podcast as well. And as I mentioned earlier, the best way to reach out to me, the best way to... Uh, to talk with me is on Instagram and my handle is at Caleb J Mason would love to hear from you would love to hear um, what you would love us to talk about on the podcast as well. And so thank you so much for listening. Also, um, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, go ahead and subscribe. If you're on Spotify, hit that follow button or if you're on Apple podcast, Stitcher, Overcast, whatever it might be, go ahead and hit subscribe, leave a rating, write a review as well. That really does do a lot to help us here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.